Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another season and another episode of SCOTUS 101. There's a lot happening at the court this term, as there always is, and we'll dive into more details about what's happening at the court in the coming weeks and months. But before we do, we thought it would make sense this week to air Heritage's annual Supreme Court preview that I had the pleasure of hosting several weeks ago with two outstanding advocates, Paul Clement and Lisa Blatt. So stay tuned for Heritage's annual Supreme Court preview right after this. Five days a week, two episode formats, one mission to deliver the news you care about and analysis on the biggest issues facing America. The Daily Signal podcast brings you two episodes every day in the same podcast feed. Each morning, catch interviews with policymakers, leading experts, and conservative activists as we discuss some of the greatest challenges facing our country and offer solutions for a brighter future. And every weekday at 5 p.m., we bring you the top news of the day. These are the headlines you care about. Subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast wherever you get your podcasts you never miss out on our morning interviews or evening news. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Heritage Foundation's annual Supreme Court preview. As was just mentioned, my name is Zach Smith and I serve as a legal fellow and as the manager of the Supreme Court and appellate advocacy program here at the Heritage Foundation. We've got a lot to cover today as the court will begin hearing cases for the new term on October 2nd. To help us understand these cases and explain what will be happening at the court, I'm pleased to be joined today by two veteran Supreme Court advocates, Paul Clement and Lisa Blatt. Paul currently serves as a partner at his firm of Clement Murphy, and prior to that, he worked in a variety of roles in private practice and in government service, including serving as the 43rd Solicitor General of the United States. He clerked for Judge Larry Silberman on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and for Justice Antonin Scalia on the U.S. Supreme Court. Paul has argued well over 100 cases at the Supreme Court. Lisa Black currently serves as a partner at Williams & Connolly and serves as the chair of the Supreme Court's appellate advocacy practice. Prior to that, she too served in a variety of roles in government service and private practice, including working for many years in the Solicitor General's office. She clerked for then-judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and Lisa has argued 46 cases before the Supreme Court. Please join me in welcoming Paul and Lisa to the stage. Well, thank you both again for joining us today. We're very excited to have you here to be part of this conversation. Several cases this year will have major implications for different areas of administrative law and could reshape the administrative state as we know it. So I thought we could start with discussing several of those cases. And I know one that is on everyone's mind is the Loper-Bright case. Paul, would you mind kicking us off and talking about that case? Sure, I'd be happy to, Zach. And it's great to be with uh with everybody at Heritage again, and it's great to be, do this with Lisa. Um, this uh, should be a lot of fun. Um, so, uh, and, and the Loper case is a great place to start. This is a, a case that is near and dear to my heart. It's a part of my growing pescatarian practice. Um, I, I've had you know other cases involving lobsters and the North American right whale. Uh, I have a case going on right now involving Rice's whale, which is different from the North American right uh, whale. And this case arises out of the federal government's regulation of the herring industry. And part of the reason that you know I'm able to have a pescatarian practice is because, as with a lot of other areas of daily life, the federal government intensively regulates uh, this particular industry. And um, in particular, what gives rise to this particular case is that they regulate both the fact that, and, and this is really emanates from congressional statute, they require the, 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 the vessels to, at the government's insistence, carry uh, monitors who take up precious space on the ship, and their whole job is to make sure uh, that the vessels are following all the various federal regulations. So you can sort of think about this as 
the maritime equivalent of the forced quartering of British soldiers. Um, but they have to give over, you know, kind of precious space on the vessels. Um, and, and that comes right from the statute. But what doesn't come from the statute is the requirement that the vessels themselves, the fishermen themselves, have to pay the salaries for the federal monitors who are monitoring them to, for compliance with all the federal regulations. And, and that's really the, the thing that has, I think, stuck in the, the craw of a lot of the, the people in the fishing industry, um, because you know, it's, it's, it's a big enough imposition on your liberty to have to carry these federal monitors, but then to have to sort of pay their salaries is you know, adding insult to injury and also gives rise to this case, because there's nothing in the statute um, that provides for this kind of having to pay uh, for the salaries of the people who are ensuring your compliance with the law. And so this gets litigated up through the D.C. Circuit. There's actually a parallel case going on in the First Circuit. And the D.C. Circuit decides this case squarely applying the Chevron Doctrine. And the, the majority of the D.C. Circuit panel concludes that the statute is ambiguous at step one of Chevron, and then at step two of Chevron defers to the agency. And Judge Walker dissents in this case and essentially suggests that the Supreme Court itself has largely walked away from the Chevron doctrine, so the court shouldn't be deferring in this particular case. And we went up to the Supreme Court on a cert petition that presented two questions to the court. One was specific to the particular statute at issue here. And then the second question asked the court whether they wanted to overrule Chevron or substantially narrow it. I think part of the reason that this case has generated a lot of interest even among people who don't fish is that when the court granted cert in this case, they limited the certiorari grant to the second question. So it was a pretty clear signal that the court was interested, at least possibly, in reconsidering the Chevron doctrine, which is something a number of justices had called for in separate writings. And that's really the, you know, the government recently filed its brief. We filed our brief about a month and a half ago. And that's really where the, the briefing is focused. There's some discussion of the particular, of the regulatory regime, but most of the focus is on should the court um, step away from the Chevron doctrine or substantially narrow the doctrine. Um, and, uh, and, and then the government, of course, comes in and says this would be, I think their word is convulsive, uh, if the court were to reconsider the, the Chevron doctrine. So just to, to you know, sort of give you a pitch for why this is such an important case is that you know, the Chevron doctrine, I think, is you can think of it as a doctrine about administrative law, you can think about it as a doctrine about how the court should go about interpreting statutes in contexts where the administration, the executive branch, has interpreted the statute. But I think more than anything, it's really a case about the separation of powers and how power is allocated in our system, particularly between Congress and the executive. Because what's happened, I think, over time is that the fact that if Congress creates ambiguous statutes, the executive has a lot of leeway under Chevron to interpret them one way or another. Um, I, th I think over time, it's really created this dynamic where Congress has very little incentive to legislate clearly. It's just so much easier for Congress. They get to a certain point, they compromise, and then at any given time, about half the members of Congress have allies in the executive branch and at a certain point, they figure, well, I'm not going to compromise anymore because, A, compromising is difficult. Compromising could make me look weak. I could get a primary challenge if I compromise. And if I just kind of keep it fuzzy and vague, I'm going to get what I want with my friends in the executive branch. And so it creates these long-term incentives. And then, of course, what happens is about roughly every four years, we have a presidential election. The, uh, you know, as a result of the Chevron doctrine, it's an available option for the new administration that comes in to change the interpretation of a lot of these statutes, sometimes on very important issues. Um, when you get an executive order that does that, it typically gets challenged, um, often seeking a nationwide injunction against the new rule, comes up to the Supreme Court on the so-called shadow docket. And so I don't want to say that Chevron is responsible for all the ills of the modern administrative state, just most of them. <laughs> uh, well, that was an excellent summary. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Lisa, if we could turn next to another uh, case implicating the administrative state, uh, the SEC versus JARCSI. 
Uh, sure. Um, I want to say, though, just a couple things. Um, so Paul's brief in the Loper case is uh, by far one of the best pieces of legal writing I've ever seen. It's absolutely incredible. And it just shows how much Paul has thought about it. And he has this way of speaking to the role of the court um, and the role of all the branches of government is, 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 quite, is quite a work of art. Um, I also thought the, the government's brief was a little bit, it had all this stuff about this being a convulsive shock and stare decisis, but it didn't even acknowledge that for the last eight years, or at least since the Obama administration, the government has been disavowing reliance on Chevron, um, and the court itself hasn't been applying it. So there's somewhat of a disconnect between the government's brief defending Chevron and the reality of the last eight years. Okay. And then on sort of the administrative state in general, I think, you know, and I, I Paul teaches separation of powers, and I, I basically am his comic relief in this class. And I once asked him, why do you conservatives care about all this stuff? Like, who cares about removal and appointments? And Paul looked at me, and he said, you know, accountability, liberty? And I just laughed, and I said, oh, OK. I didn't realize that. But I do think, so the more you look at the administrative state as uh, being removed from accountability, um, either because it's, you know, lack of removal or appointments or whatever, the more Chevron just becomes offensive because then there's just nobody who's accountable making all these huge decisions. And so we're at a place in our country and I think with the court where they're rethinking these fundamental questions about the administrative state and how people's liberty interests are, um, you know, being taken away by bureaucrats, which brings me to SEC versus... Um, Sarkeesy, I don't know how we're pronouncing it, but sure. um, and another sort of big picture thing. I mean, we have a lot of the the sort of Paul's side of the fence and the challengers are definitely doing quite well in the Supreme Court, um, but we have this situation where we have a lot of cases coming out of the Fifth Circuit where they've been striking the constitutionality of the CFPB's funding, and this is one where the Fifth Circuit struck on three separate grounds the uh, SEC's uh, way of adjudicating civil penalties. And so this is a hot issue. Um, SEC's an aggressive agency to be you know, gone after by um, the SEC, I think, triggers all these senses of you know, big, bad, mean government. And so the three, this has three huge questions. Um, the first is whether the SEC's proceeding by way of adjudication, which is sort of, you know, an ALJ decides you're bad and imposes a penalty, and then you get full review by the SEC, then you would go to court. Does that violate your right to a jury trial? Um, apparently, the standard is that you can take away the jury trial um, if public rights are being adjudicated. And the court said, let's look at common law. Basically, the SEC sues people for fraud. Fraud is a common law kind of concept. That's a private right. So I frankly have no clue what's, what it means to talk about a public right. This just makes no sense to me. But this court in, the court recently in oil states decided that the um, PTAB or the PTO could adjudicate patents. And that did not deprive uh, uh, patentees of their Seventh Amendment jury rights. So I don't necessarily see this Seventh Amendment, um, I don't see the Seventh Amendment case, a Seventh Amendment issue prevailing. The second issue is the court said the SEC system is unconstitutional because Congress could not have or should not have delegated to the SEC the decision to proceed either internally by adjudication or go to court. So to get a civil penalty, you can, just like the FTC and a lot of other agencies, you can either do it in-house or go to court. Well, guess what you would do if you were an agency? I would do it in-house because you're going to win. <laughs> you get to be the, the, the judge, jury, and the executioner. And it is very unfair to have that. Um, however, what the court said was a little bit in my view, it's not going to, I don't think that this will prevail either. They said the decision to decide whether to go after somebody in the civil, civil system in court or internal is legislative in nature, and there's no intelligible principle. And the government has a pretty good argument that mm, that can't be right because you can always decide whether to prosecute somebody or go after them civilly, and there's no intelligent principle. So I don't, I don't think, even though it is incredibly unfair, and I do think there's some due process arguments to be made for the fact that the uh, government can always go after you internally, where your government's always going to win, I don't see this as a non-delegation. The third issue I do think has legs and is a more powerful argument against the SEC structure. And since Paul is the expert on this, you know, Paul, please correct me. But 
The, this is a question, there's a generic law under the APA that gives administrative law judges for cause removal protection through the MSPB system. So ALJs and all these various agencies can't be removed unless there's cause. And normally that would be okay, but here there's a, you know, it's called the two-layer protection issue for those steeped in, in administrative law. But the SEC, the head of the SEC is also protected from uh, removal at will, so it has a cause standard. So you have the ALJs who get for cause protection, and that's not only, that also is reviewed by the MSPB, MSPB that also has its own for cause removal protection. So there's almost a triple accountability problem here. And in this case versus free enterprise, um, the court said you can't have this double layer protection. Um, so the government tries to distinguish free enterprise and said, well, that, that was the peekaboo, that board, the Public Accounting, I don't know, Financial Accountability Board was in an enforcement policy-making role. Here, ALJs are more adjudicatory. Um, I'm not sure that's such a great argument. Um, so I, I do think that, I think this argument does have um, some legs. In that free enterprise case, I think there was a footnote where the court said, now we're not deciding whether ALJs are unconstitutional and they adjudicate anyway, but I don't think the court ever explained why that matters. Um, but here's the, the rub, and I know Paul likes to talk about this issue too. The Fifth Circuit didn't have to decide what the relief was if you have an unconstitutionally you know, ALJ because they had already invalidated the rule on the other two grounds. And so if you just look at the relief for an improper uh, official, the court in this Lucia case, I think it's Lucia, um, said that ALJs, because they weren't properly appointed, uh, you get a do-over, the person who had a bad judge. And it makes sense. If you have a biased judge, you get a do-over. But in the removal context, the court in a series of cases um, have said, I guess it was in Free Enterprise, Celia Law, and with the CFPB and the Collins case of a couple terms ago, that you need to show prejudice. So the government is going to say, um, you know, all right, so fine, it's unconstitutional, but so what? It doesn't really make a difference, and this, this petitioner is not going to get any relief. And so there is something just stepping back from all the separation of power stuff and looking at a series of cases. It's a bunch of cases where these challengers keep saying the administrative state is unconstitutional. It violates all these structural protections. And then the court doesn't give these people any relief. And so, and yet, it feels like the this, this individual person is asserting the rights of sort of I don't know, to me it's very abstract, but once the court decides there's no remedy, it's not clear how any of these people have standing because their, their, their rights are not redressable by the court. So I think the law's a little bit of a mess here, but we'll see what happens. Anything to add, Paul? Yeah, and um, then do you want me to go right into the next gift from the Fifth Circuit? Okay, That'd so um, the, uh, the, the only thing I would add, um, you know, I think Lisa surveyed the issues very effectively and you know, also sort of highlighted that the double four cause removal um, issue is the one where I think the government definitely has the greatest vulnerability. Um, that issue was kind of, that was like the issue we were kind of, the substantive issue that was in the background of the Axon case last year where the court decided you know, on the procedural ground that you'd go right to district court. But that's the issue that was in the, the backdrop there. It's a common feature of ALJs across different agencies. And I, I find it very difficult to understand after Free Enterprise Fund how double four cause removal for the ALJs could be constitutional. I would just sort of, you know, there's another potential anomaly um, with that double four cause removal issue. Um, and, and it goes back to where Lisa started with, like, why do we care about these things? Because one of the things that seems a little weird about the double four cause removal issue is that the consequence of saying that is unconstitutional, you, you, the, the easiest way to fix it would be to say that the second layer of four cause removal is removed, and so the ALJs can basically be removed at will by the SEC. And, of course, the consequence of that would be to make the ALJs even more responsive to the agency. And part of the felt unfairness of all of this is that, you know, you're stuck in front of this agency and they're adjudicating their own cases and they never lose. And so it seems weird that, but, but if you think about it, at least from my perspective, it still all makes sense because what, what you care about in the separation of powers and what I think a majority of the court cares deeply about in this context is accountability. 
and this idea of like you know if you're hacked off because of what happens to you before a an ALJ in the SEC like how does an ordinary citizen know who the heck to complain about and you know and they're hacked off and like you're going to go to the MSPB to complain because the MSPB like what is that and it's not the agency that's like taking your money away it's not the one that you're focused on you're mad at Gary Gensler you're not mad at like the MSPB and so so even though it seems a little odd that like the net result of these cases may be to make ALJs more responsive to the agency that they work for, I think in the long run that actually is consistent with kind of what the court's doing in this area, which is to try to create some accountability in the administrative state so people have to own decisions. If the, if the SEC is unfair, like at least the SEC is clearly um, the target for your ire and maybe the target for Congress trying to provide some reforms, maybe trying to articulate an intelligible principle for when they have to go to court, that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, like it, it was maybe a decade or so ago when you look at the Supreme Court's shrinking docket, which now looks like pretty ample uh, by comparison. But, you know, a decade ago, you'd look at the shrinking docket and you'd say, thank God for the Ninth Circuit. Because if it wasn't for the Ninth Circuit coming out with these kind of crazy rulings that the Supreme Court had to review, um, what would the court do? And, and now I think the Fifth Circuit <laughs> has kind of provided, you know, filled that gap by deciding a lot of these kind of cutting edge issues. It's obviously a very conservative court. As a result, when you're challenging administrative action, um, you know, you, it, it, a lot of those administrators are not located in Texas. Um, but nonetheless, you know, a lot of litigants are trying to figure out ways to bring their causes of action and their challenges within the confines of the Fifth Circuit. And then the Fifth Circuit is, is, is pretty hospitable to some of these claims and skeptical of the government. And so another case that sort of fits that pattern is this case about the CFPB and its appropriations mechanism. And so this all goes back to Sarbanes-Oxley and the creation of the CFPB. The CFPB obviously gave us the Celia Law case. And so this is an agency that you know I think um, a lot of conservatives love to hate. Um, it was designed by Congress in, uh, you know, at, at a period where there was such a felt need to have some reform, and there's enough impetus behind that that I think the the sponsors of the law could be kind of creative in structuring this agency and making it kind of more independent in, in certain ways than a typical uh, administrative agency. And so one of the things that they did is largely insulate the CFPB from the normal appropriations process. And so we, you know, we think we have an understanding if we live in DC about how the appropriations process works. We think that's in the Constitution somewhere. We think that that means that Congress has to appropriate funds for agencies roughly every two years. And that sort of creates a certain dependency of the agency on Congress, a certain need to be receptive to oversight requests and all of that. And so when they created the CFPB, they purposely gave it essentially a permanent appropriation, and they basically didn't require that money to come directly from Congress. It's, they empowered the, the head of the CFPB to essentially decide what was reasonably necessary under a very high cap and to get that money from the Federal Reserve Board. Um, rather than Congress. And so all of that is being challenged as inconsistent with the appropriations clause of the Constitution. Um, it's interesting because I think as you see the briefing in this case play out, the, the, the real appeal of the argument that the challengers have made is that this appropriations mechanism combines a variety of features of insulation that are really unprecedented. And the government's response to all of that, which is not ineffective, um, is to sort of pick those off one by one and say, well, you know, we might not have another agency that has all three of these insulating features, but if you, if you, if you take them one by one, you know, the sort of permanent appropriation, that's not so much of a problem. Um, we have that in other agencies. If you pick off the idea that the funds come from sort of fees charged as opposed to normal appropriations, that's a feature we have in, uh, in other agencies and so on. So they sort of break it down one by one and say none of these features are kind of independently a constitutional violation. And, uh, and therefore, 
having all three of them together doesn't make a constitutional violation. And I think that's where some of the action is going to be on the, on the court. I think there's going to be a sense on some of the justices that this is sort of too insulated from the, uh, the appropriations process. But I think it, it may be a challenge to figure out why it is that sort of the combination of things that have been around for quite some time in various agencies, the, why, why the combination of those crosses the constitutional line. And I guess, you know, one thing that, I, it, you know, it's weird, but sometimes, like, you know, the Constitution's text um, can, 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 can be pretty important on an issue. And one of the things I actually think the government has going for it in this case is that the text of the Constitution specifies that uh, for the Army, or for the, basically the military, um, there has to be an appropriations law every two years. And it doesn't specify that for any other agency. So at least when it comes to the permanent appropriations feature, again, there's these other features that, that, that reinforce it and may put it over the constitutional line. But as to that feature in particular, I do think the, the government has a pretty good constitutional uh, argument. And then the last thing I'll say is, and Lisa alluded to this, if the court finds the appropriations combination of these insulations from the appropriations power to be unconstitutional, then there's the question of remedy. And I think in a lot of these cases, the impulse of the court has been to say, violation, yes, remedy, not so much. And in this context, I think it's going to be hard for the court to say no remedy, both for you know, kind of case-specific reasons as to the way this challenge proceeded, but also because if an agency's like, funding process was infirm, like it needs money to do anything. And so there's a really good argument that if this sort of constitutional violation is right, then essentially everything the CFPB's done um, is constitutionally problematic. So it'll be interesting to see how that argument plays out in this context. Lisa, anything to add? Well, if we could shift gears now, uh, if you could talk about two First Amendment cases, Lisa, the Linkey case and the O'Connor-Ratcliffe case. Uh, sure. So um, this is the, these are the cases involving when public officials uh, use their personal social media cases, are they acting as state actors and subject to uh, the First Amendment? Um, so these are, are cases where I think you have a school board trustee and another city mayor who had, um, they had Twitter and I think a Facebook and a Twitter X account. And one of them talked about COVID policies and I'm not sure what the, 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 the school trustee was saying, but there were negative comments from, par from parents and then there was a negative comment from one of the citizens and the public officials blocked them. And the Court of Appeals have had, you know, the Ninth Circuit and Sixth Circuit have differing views on whether they're state actors. So, and if they're state actors, um, you are subject to the First Amendment and that includes the most basic prohibitions against speaker and viewpoint discrimination. And if you block uh, somebody from your website based on their negative criticism, that's blatantly a First Amendment violation. So what the Sixth Circuit held and what the government is arguing and uh, both the public officials and the United States is that there's, there's state action and their state actors only if they're actually carrying out a specific governmental duty um, or it's, they're using the social media account under their authority of, of their or job. And here, the officials fail that completely because these are private accounts um, that they own and operate. They had these accounts before they became public officials. They um, talk about both their jobs and they talk about their private lives. And there's an argument that, you know, as public officials, they're allowed to have private life um, and they're even allowed to talk about their job. Um, and they're not state actors. So I think that they that side has the most kind of clear line, it's coherent. Um, the other side, which is what the block parties are arguing and what the Ninth Circuit held, um, is that they're state officials as long as they would be perceived as such um, by a reasonable person and that they have the pretense of governmental authority. Would we think that they're talking in their official capacity? I find that very hard to follow, and I don't think that's necessarily what the court is going to find attractive. But I do think, if we all recall, um, and I do think the the public officials are, are 
more likely than not to win. But I can't help but think that some members of the court are not going to be thinking about the former president and his use of, of then Twitter. There was a well-known case where he blocked 41 uh, people from Twitter. Uh, the I think it was the Southern District of New York said it's public forum, clearly state action, First Amendment violation, the Second Circuit affirmed. Um, and I don't know if it was the Trump administration or even, I guess it was the Trump administration sought cert. Um, and then the case mooted because of the election. So the court never took it. And I just feel like I get it with these local officials, but the notion of a president, you know, banning all you know, black people from their site or all Jewish people from the site and announcing all kinds of policies, even declaring war, how the, somehow the court is going to leave that open and say, listen, maybe the president is subject to a different, different use. So we'll see. And then I don't know if we want to talk about their two other social media cases working their way. One involves uh, state laws that say um, social internet companies and social media companies have to basically that the state gets to control how they... Uh, uh, moderate their content and who's on and off the site. And then there's a uh, stay that was just entered by Justice Alito involving the state of Missouri about the White House, CDC, FBI, and the Surgeon General's ability to communicate with social media companies or the internet companies about the type of content they put. And that that is happening right now um, in the Supreme Court uh, responses due Wednesday. The stay uh, expires on Friday. So lots of social media cases coming down the pike. Paul, anything to add? No, I mean, I, you know, like I do think it's interesting because it does like feel slightly different when it's the president, um, and why. you know that, and part of that was you know the sort of very intense way that he seemed to be using the social media. But then the other thing is, you know, there's something about sort of the president and um, the, the the thing that's kind of like interesting about that though is like you know that starts to sound a lot like the arguments for. Like, what makes the president different? Oh, well, the president's different because it's such an all-encompassing 24-7 yeah. sort of thing. So everything the, everything the president does is sort of official. Well, that starts to sound like an immunity argument that's probably being made in some court somewhere in the country right now, too. So, there, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the court sort of tiptoes around um, that issue because it's definitely going to be in the backdrop. But I think there are probably some pretty good reasons for the court um, to sort of not say anything in particular about that in the context of these cases. So I think that'll be an interesting dynamic to watch um, in that case. Um, so my next case is a case that um, I think Lisa did not want to talk about, but I'm delighted to talk about, um, which is the <laughs> Moore case. Um, and this is, you know, the great 16th Amendment case of the court's term. Um, and I think, you know, the 16th Amendment was, you know, like convulsive, I guess, to use the SG's word, um, from, from, from the Loper Bright brief. So just, you know, to give you a sense of why I'm enthusiastic about this case. So the issue in this case is essentially the circumstances in which the federal government can tax somebody consistent with the 16th Amendment. Um, without a realization event. And the sort of the background of this is Congress passed a pretty obscure statute called something like the Mandatory Re uh, Repatriation Tax that basically addressed a concern that there were certain taxpayers who were leaving lots and lots of money um, in sort of foreign companies and they weren't repatriating it to the United States where it could be taxed. And so they were building up sort of lots of wealth in a way that wasn't sort of... Uh, giving any sort of benefit to the public fisc. So they passed a very targeted statute uh, that sort of created a tax and essentially had a, like, almost like a constructive realization of getting the money back to the United States. So it sounds kind of boring and technical. So why am I so excited about this case? So here's why I'm excited about this case. I, you know, it, it, in the broadest strokes, there are kind of like three great sort of kind of constitutional moments in the Constitution. There's the framing in the original Ten Amendments, there's the Reconstruction Amendments. And then the last piece of it that tends to get less attention is really these sort of series of progressive amendments, the 16th Amendment, the 17th Amendment, 18th Amendment, 19th Amendment, 20th Amendment, 21st Amendment. Those are kind of the three great periods. And, you know, they, I think, to a degree that maybe people underappreciate, had a really significant effect on the nature of our constitutional government and particularly the relationship between the states and the federal government. 
And I think that's particularly true of the 16th and the 17th Amendment. Because the way the framers set up the Constitution, the federal government had relatively limited taxing power because it couldn't impose a direct tax without apportioning the burden of the tax among the states. It's directly out of the Constitution. Now, the line between a direct tax and an indirect tax, which doesn't have to be apportioned, is a little bit hazy. But, you know, for the first, like, you know, 100-plus years of the republic, the, gov- the federal government was largely financing itself with stuff like tariffs, um, which didn't have to be apportioned and were classically kind of indirect tax. And as long as the federal government was doing that, there were some real limits on how big the federal government could get because it was seriously revenue-constrained. The 16th Amendment just blew the doors off of that and paved the way for the income tax, which is now why we have a federal government of this huge size that we have. So other than thinking about this as like a boring tax case, I think like the 16th Amendment, 17th Amendment, which also fundamentally changed the relationship between the states and the federal government by having direct election of senators, this is super interesting stuff, at least to me. And this case is, you know, you know, is, is we don't get a lot of 16th Amendment cases from this perspective, but this is hugely important. And if you don't care about it for that reason, then the other reason to care about it is, you know, people are talking about a wealth tax, and the constitutionality of a wealth tax may well be decided in the context of this case. Because although this is a funky little sort of statute about repatriated foreign income, this issue about whether you can ta- the federal government can tax people without a realization event. Um, if that's true, then there's no reason for the federal government to wait until you actually take like you know money from your stocks that have appreciated over time and take it as a capital gain. They don't have to wait for that. They can just say, ah, Bradbury, you're, you're looking a little wealthier than you did last year. We're going to tax you on your unrealized wealth. And the fact that like you haven't taken any of that money and you're, none of it's in your wallet and you don't actually feel any richer and they're all paper gains and they could all be gone tomorrow, eh, don't worry about it. We're going to tax it um, pursuant to our 16th Amendment authority. So I think the issue here is kind of much more important than meets the eye. And I think that for that reason, you know, there's, I, I, you know, I think we've already seen just the topside briefs and there's some 20 plus amicus briefs. So I'm sorry, Lisa, you don't like this case. You think it's boring. I think this is like one of the sleeper cases of the term. Mm. Anything to add, Lisa? I think this is more important than the gun case. <laughs> well, speaking of the gun case, uh, could you tell us about United States versus Rahimi? Yeah. So this is a, this is a, this is a big one um, because it involves guns. Uh, this is going to be argued on November 7th. And when I say guns, you know, a lot of people feel very strongly about it. Um, so this involves the facial constitutionality of Section 922G8, which uh, makes it a felony if you possess a gun, if you're subject to an order uh, that involves a d- domestic restraining order but can be based on one of two things. One is there was a finding that you are, uh, represent a credible threat of violence, or the other is that the order just prohibits you from engaging in violence, i.e. no individualized finding that you're a danger to anyone. And so the backdrop of this, of course, is um, Heller, which, you know, when I went to law school, there was no Second Amendment right, even though I lived in Texas and lots of people had guns, but now it's, it's definitely a right after Heller. Um, but the court did all kinds of weird things in Heller. It, it, it basically said, you know, there's a Second Amendment right, but you can, we're not going to question its banning or its regulation in sensitive places, and uh, we're going to, it's okay to ban dangerous and unusual weapons, and you can restrict the right to, quote, unquote, law-abiding and responsible citizens. So along comes Bruin, case Paul argued, in June of last year, and that radicalized or at least clarified, depending on your perspective, uh, the way you treat Second Amendment uh, challenges. And what the court said was that you look at history and tradition. Um, That's a flexible inquiry. We're not going to exactly tell you how you look at history and tradition, but at least look at history and tradition in terms of if if the law restricts your right to keep and bear arms, it's presumptively unconstitutional unless you can point to a historical analog that had at least comparable burdens or comparable justifications. So out come a wave of challenges. I think there have been, by one count, 31 successful challenges against gun regulation. Uh, They're falling like, um, I don't know, dominoes. Um, 
There is, and this one is one, um, but there are many others involving, most notably, the one uh, under which Hunter Biden, I think, has been prosecuted, and that is um, uh, G3, 922 G3, that makes uh, it uh, unlawful to have a weapon and be a user of, an, uh, of a controlled substance or be addicted to it which includes marijuana. There's G6, which means you can't own a gun if you've been dishonorably discharged from the army. There's G9, if you've been convicted of a misdemeanor, uh, domestic violence. It's also unlawful to sell shotguns to anyone under 18 or any other firearm um, under uh, 21. This is, I think, by most people's accounts, the best case for the government, because who wants to go against domestic you know, violence? Uh, uh, people who... Um, you know, murder their wives. And in this case, he has, this person is sort of a very good plaintiff from the government's perspective. He has five either convictions or charges of shooting people, including his wife, the girlfriend, police, I don't know, about everybody. And the order that he was under had a finding that he was a credible threat. The Fifth Circuit has a field day with this and says, we're going to apply Bruin. Um, not going to look at the plaintiff. We're just going to look at, we're going to survey history. And I don't see anything. I don't, we don't see anything. There's no really matchup to um, this sort of analog with respect to either the nature of the restriction of where a specific person was prohibited from doing it or the justification. Um, the U.S. just filed its brief, or I guess the, filed its brief a long time ago. And it's a very odd brief because I think Someone should run a count, but how many times they said, you can basically restrict weapons to any law-abiding, to, to restrict weapons to only law-abiding and responsible citizens. And therefore, anything that does that is constitutional. Now, to me, that makes absolutely no sense, um, because what about people convicted of DWI, tax evasion, polluters? I, and I think the court is going to have a lot of difficulty with this case because there will be some pressure to think that Congress should be able to restrict, at least in a case where there's a finding, an individualized finding of dangerousness. Um, and this was a facial challenge, so they can just say, as applied, it's constitutional. But at the same time, are they going to give courts any guide to how much history and uh, you know history and tradition? From my way of thinking, um, just reading the briefs and thinking about the Second Amendment, there's two ways of thinking about it, is do you think of it as a right or do you think of it as a privilege? And there's a certain way, there's a certain unacceptable, I mean, sorry, just unavoidable outcome for people who, like me, who don't like guns. If you think of it as a right, there's a lot of laws that are just blatantly unconstitutional. And if you think of it as a privilege, well then, you know, you can start justifying a lot more regulation. But it is a right. Um, the other thing I will say just about this history and tradition is I just don't know why I care about history and tradition when I think about schools and places of worship and public buildings or 13-year-olds. I mean, I watched Little House on the Prairie, grew up in Texas, remember the rifleman, everybody had guns. And I just, at least on TV, they did. And so under that view, I, I just, to me, this makes no sense. Um, but we're stuck with this history and tradition. It'll be fun to watch the court kind of figure out how they're, how they're going to get themselves out of this mess. Paul, anything to add? So, <laughs> I mean, let me just give you sort of like a slightly different sort of perspective on sort of the Second Amendment as it's evolved and just put this case in context. Um, you know, though I, you know, I, I, I certainly don't endorse everything Lisa just said, but, but, you know, I agree with a lot of the broad strokes. But if you sort of think about kind of the history of the modern Second Amendment, the Supreme Court in Heller says it's an individual right, doesn't say privilege, very clearly says it's an individual right. And then in McDonald against the city of Chicago, it says that this right is a fundamental right, it's not a second-class right, and therefore it is incorporated against the state governments. And so presumptively, every state and local gun law is subject to constitutional scrutiny. And Normally, you would have expected that that meant that there would be like a decade where there'd be a lot of litigation about these various laws. And, you know, like half of them would be upheld and half of them been struck down. And, you know, but, but it's almost like unthinkable that given that state and local governments across the country before Heller were passing laws on the assumption that they were unconstrained by the Second Amendment, it's almost unthinkable that they would have all nonetheless passed laws that fully conformed with the Second Amendment, like Kismet. Wow. Um, but instead of all of that happening in the decade after McDonald, the Supreme Court sort of took that decade off 
for reasons that are sort of explainable, if you count noses anyways. And lower courts who, you know, it's, it's many of whom had judges who were no more comfortable with guns than Lisa, um, came up with sort of standards of review that ended up approving almost everything. And the Supreme Court in Bruin kind of finally got around to looking all of that and said, no, actually, we meant what we said in Bruin. We meant what we said, uh, rather, we meant what we said in Heller. We meant what we said in McDonald. And we need to sort of not have this sort of, we're going to call it heightened scrutiny, but everything's constitutional thing. That's just not how we do that here. Um, they replaced it with history and tradition, which is you know something that we'll see how that plays out over time. But I think what we're starting to see now is just the manifestation of kind of a serious engagement with what it means to have an individual Second Amendment right that applies against state and local governments and is going to be relatively robustly ap applied by some of the circuits. And what that's going to mean is that the nature of the cases that the Supreme Court get start to change a little bit. And in the era where you know, the court was you know, essentially signaling that it wasn't really taking a lot of these Second Amendment cases, it was left to, you know, largely Second Amendment advocacy groups to pick relatively friendly, like attractive sort of, you know, plaintiffs to bring affirmative challenges to regimes where they could sort of pick the time, place, and manner of what they challenged and when they challenged and what the plaintiff looked like. And in a world where instead of that, like the courts are really going to start taking this stuff seriously and they're going to apply it and the Fifth Circuit is going to take history and tradition and say, this statute's unconstitutional. You know, a lot of those cases, instead of coming up in declaratory judgment actions by plaintiffs, are going to be raised by defendants um, who, you know, are not sort of, you know, perfectly picked out of a universe of potential plaintiffs to be the very most attractive uh, litigants. And so the Supreme Court's going to have to wrestle with all of that. And I think, you know, Rahim is just in that sense, it's, it's the thin edge of a wedge where I think we're going to see more of these cases. They're going to have to do a Second Amendment case, um, you, know, you know, like about one a term. I mean, the way they do with other constitutional amendments that are uh, litigated frequently. And, you know, I think they're going to have to sort of wrestle with, you know, how do we deal with a case like this where it's a facial challenge, but it's a defendant raising it and, the circumstances of this are probably such that there may be plenty of ways for a government to regulate this particular individual and whether they get access to firearms, but maybe this kind of broad scope approach reflected in the statute is problematic, and how do we reconcile all of that? So in, in, my, own, in my own mind, you know, I think it's going to be fascinating. I mean, part of the reason I feel like I've been very privileged to get to work on Second Amendment issues over the past years is because they're just, you know, like most constitutional amendments, like the litigation is like fully mature. Right. You know, we think about free speech cases and we got like, okay, like it's largely a matter of like figuring out which doctrinal box you get into. And once you get into that box, if it's strict scrutiny, you're going to win. And if it's something, you know, with lower scrutiny, you're going to lose. And it's all about, you know, getting your little fact pattern into these well-established doctrinal boxes. Fourth Amendment, good grief. You know, you got to read like a hundred unreasonable search cases to figure out whether your search is reasonable or unreasonable. And it's all just kind of you're boxed in everywhere by doctrine. And what makes the Second Amendment, if you just want to be a law geek, um, you know, kind of fascinating is like, you know, the, the court's sort of starting from scratch and they've decided that they're not going to do this strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny thing, and they're going to do this history and tradition, and they're going to confront all these issues. And, you know, from my standpoint, as a watcher of the court, I say, bring it on. It's going to be fascinating. And this is, you know, if, if you take Heller and McDonald seriously, this probably should have started a decade ago. But, but now it's better, than, better late than never. Yeah. yeah, and one other thing that I thought Judge Ho, who wrote a separate concurring opinion in the case below, was very effective. Um, and again, as somebody who doesn't like guns, this is an argument that is, I think, hard for people to combat, is, you know, we always think about public safety. And I thought Judge Ho made a very good argument that, look, a lot of these domestic orders are entered both ways. They're by consent. So a lot of women or victims are subject to the same order. And so if you have these broad prohibitions, you're preventing people who may need to defend themselves or are completely innocent um, from owning a weapon that should be used to kill their boyfriends. 
I'm sorry, I meant that sarcastically, but should be used to defend themselves. Mm. Well, I think we will have a few minutes uh, for questions. But before we move to questions, I'm curious. Uh, the court's coming back. It'll have its annual long conference on September 26th. Are there any petitions you're watching, either at the long conference or just pending petitions in general? Lisa, I know you mentioned uh, the uh, two uh, net choice cases challenging Florida and Texas's law. Paul, I know you also have a very interesting uh, death penalty case, the Glossop case uh, pending. Uh, are there any other petitions uh, either of you are watching? I don't think on, on the long conference, I mean, this, this emergency docket is just because I'm not sure why. I mean, was, one of the things I was going to say is that Paul and I love to do the uh, Fifth Circuit Judicial Conference, but we have a lot of fun. But a, a lot of it is just all these, um, the more polarized uh, the country gets, the more polarized uh, the, the, the stuff out of the um, administrations are coming, and the more polarized our nomination process is. We have very few moderates on the court anymore and it just seems like there are court of appeals decisions coming out no matter what administration is in, in that they're just they need immediate attention so so much of the docket i don't think through the fault of the court at all but as a function of both what district courts are doing at the injunction level and the administrations are doing is just requiring this enormous amount of attention and it's unfortunately i think it's depriving uh it's depriving the rest of us who like to litigate before the court of a lot of cases. I mean, they're, they're taking so few cases, but they're basically inundated with a lot of emergency work. Yeah, and the only thing, I mean, and I say this pretty much every year and no one listens, certainly nobody on the court, but I, but I do think the court does itself a disservice by not taking more cases. Because, you know, there, there are a certain number of cases that are controversial. There are a certain number of cases that have to be dealt with by the emergency docket. All of that stuff is, by its nature, controversial. And if you sort of think about that as the numerator, if that ends up consuming almost all of the court's attention um, and they're not deciding sort of you know, criminal cases and First Amendment cases and other cases where there are you know, unusual alignment of justices or they all agree that you know, unanimously this lower court or that lower court got it wrong, I, you know, I, I think it feeds this assumption or this perception that the court is very divisive and it's dealing with nothing but hot button issues. And I think if the court were to take, you know, a few more cases and, you know, engage in a little more error correction um, on some cases that are just wrong, and maybe there's not like a circuit split yet, but who cares? Like, you know, the lower court got this terribly wrong. Some litigant's liberty is being infringed or some big company's got to pay like $100 million for something that shouldn't be more than a $10 million case. Like, take a couple of those cases, reverse them unanimously, and you look kind of more sort of, you know, kind of functional as a court um, and give people a chance to sort of see you in action in cases that aren't sort of involving like race, guns, and abortion. I mean, I think the court would benefit from that in the long run. Um, and so would I, because a few more of my petitions to get granted. So I think it, it's really win-win. What's not to like? Why do you think the court is taking fewer petitions uh, these days, Paul? Um, it's Chevron's fault. And, I, and I'm sort of serious about that because there, there are like interpersonal dynamics on the court and, you know, like there are certain justices, like, you know, I think Justice O'Connor just liked taking more cases than maybe Justice Alito. So, you know, and Justice White was a good one to grant cert. So part of it is kind of very personal and idiosyncratic in terms of the personality. But if you think about what generates circuit splits, what generates circuit splits is um, important major legislation that was passed five to ten years earlier. And sometimes around like 1991 or so, you know, with the exception of the Affordable Care Act that God bless it has produced a couple of interesting cases, but you know, generally about with like the Civil Rights Restoration Act of 1991 and the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990 or 91, like Congress just st stopped doing that. They stopped passing sort of statutes. Um, particularly statutes that gave private causes of action that let lots of people litigate things in different circuits across the country. And so, you know, I, I, I think part of the court's reduction of, doc, of, of its docket is like a lagged reflection of the fact that Congress hasn't done much for the last sort of 30 years. And I think that's largely a product of Chevron. I remember Justice Ginsburg once said, and I thought she was a little nutty at the time, she said it was because there were so many amicus briefs being filed that the justices had to wade through. And like, I don't think they read the amicus briefs. I think it's the clerks do it. But to her credit, she is right, was right, that the amount of amicus briefs is like 
gone up exponentially. But I and Justice Ginsburg actually read them. So maybe that's, that's it's why. Very... Remember, I mean, when we were in the SG's office, at least I was in '96. That was the heyday of everything, of all the EDPA and DOMA and everything else, and that produced a very large docket from you know up through and all the the child online privacy act statute. So a lot of stuff was happening and then there was this just complete dearth of cases. But I do think there are routine commercial cases. I've also heard some of the justices say at some of these conferences that they don't want to take cases unless they think they can come up with a clear answer and sometimes it's just too hard. <laughs> to me that's funny. I mean, they do get paid. They should go part-time if they don't want to take more cases. Well, I think we have time for one question. Uh, I know we have some in the audience or some online. Matt. Hi, my name is Matt. I just wanted to thank you both for being here, by the way. Um, I had one question about Supreme Court ethics, uh, what each of you think about it, and if you think the court will adopt ethics reforms in the future. Well, they got to fix the Venmo problem. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I don't think either of us are going to have a comment on that. OK. No, 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 I'm, I'm going to let Lisa save me. Um, <laughs> I don't think you have a comment on that. Uh, uh, sure. Actually, let's go to Tom, if we can. Uh, Tom, Tom Jipping, I'm in the legal center here at Heritage. Uh, Paul, you worked in the Senate. I was there for a long time, see how the sausage is made. Uh, do you think that if we have judges who take statutory text more seriously and, as you referred to kind of at the top, less discretion for the bureaucrats and agencies, that that will improve what Congress produces in terms of its legislation? Or do you think Congress has gotten so used to we can just punt and the unelected somebodies will do our job for us. It's, I mean, it's a great question, Tom. I'm, you know, I'm, this, despite, you know, a lot of recent evidence to the contrary, I'm an optimist. Um, you know, I, I do think that, you know, our institutions, I don't think there's like a fundamental defect with them. And I think when you sort of see, you know, sort of a situation like we have where Congress doesn't seem to function nearly as well as it used to, I mean, you know, maybe part of it is just nostalgia, but like when you and I were working in the Senate, you know, this was in the midst of like Clinton impeachment and, you know, I would hear every day about how things like used to be better 20 years earlier and people, <laughs> you know, knew how to work with each other. But I look back to, you know, 1998 and I think, wow, if we could only get back to that point where, you know, at least like half of the senators were talking to each other across the aisle. Um, and maybe there were people on both sides that weren't trying to compromise, but, you know, Pat Leahy and Orrin Hatch were, you know, working together to do stuff and they would actually get stuff. Like, you know, I, I, I think that, that, you know, it, there are lots of phenomenon and, you know, everybody wants to blame social media for everything. And as a, you know, as somebody who has social media companies as my clients, I'm convinced that can't be right. So, so you got to like look around and say, what, what's changed? What's, what, you know, what's caused the dynamic to shift? And there's certainly things like the 24 hour news cycle that we can't fully control, can't fully adjust for. But I, I honestly think that Chevron is part of the problem and this deferral to the agencies. And it's, nobody, it's not a Republican-Democratic issue in my view, because at any given time, half of Congress has their friends in the White House. So it just shifts over time, and the dynamic changes a little bit from Republican administration to Democratic administration. But I do think, um, like, why would you compromise? under circumstances where you can get like 98% of what you want, at least for the next four years, if you just kick the issue to, you know, the, the, you know, the person who used to work in the office next to you in the Senate, but is now in the administrative agency. Yeah, I would say it's even worse than that, because for some of us who thought uh, that sometimes, at least with like the student loans or some of the COVID stuff, there's almost, you just have the, these administrations and sometimes in the Trump administration do crazy things and think, well, who cares? We can get all the political benefits and we'll just hope the courts will strike it. And so it's, it's just, it's, it's making everybody happy and everybody miserable at the same time. Yeah, and I don't think, you know, just to, just to warm to my theme, but like I don't think it's great for the country for the rules on major issues and you can pick the issue, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, that you care the most about, whether it's like immigration on the one hand or, you know, you know, sort of COVID policy on the other or whatever it is. But like, you know, the rules on like those major issues shouldn't change every four years um, just because the administration's changed. But that's also sort of part of what we've gotten. And then, you know, as I mentioned, you know, you now like 
I mean, all you have to do is, if it's a Republican administration, they're going to come in and they're going to change a bunch of rules, and then California is going to challenge all of those new rules in the, you know, the district court in Berkeley. And if it's a Democrat, you know, they're going to come in and they're going to change all the rules back. And Texas is going to challenge those rules in, uh, you know, district court in Texas. And I, I don't know. I just, I think we ought to get past a world where everything is done by administrative order and past a world where every third Supreme Court case has California or Texas in the caption. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Unfortunately, we're out of time. If you're interested in what happens each week at the Supreme Court, I hope you'll tune in to the Heritage Foundation's weekly Supreme Court podcast, SCOTUS 101. Both Paul and Lisa have been kind enough to be guests in the past. I co-host it with my colleague, Giancarlo Canaparo. But in the meantime, please join me in giving Lisa and Paul a hand and thanking them for being with us today. Thank you both. Well, that's it for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101 and this special Supreme Court preview episode. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. You can also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101 and email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.